you are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast, where I discuss writing specifically today, my own writing as we get into part five of Demise of the Trinity, and we are going to be reading two chapters today, most likely, and I'm, here's the thing, I'm kind of burnt out on it already. And it's not that I don't want to finish what I started. I am going to finish what I started. It's that I read this chapter aloud three years ago, and it feels like yesterday. I was on a podcast called The Sample Chapter Podcast. And out of all the chapters that I could read without having major spoilers for the entire book was Veronica's chapter. And I didn't even get to finish it. I think I read for 10 or 15 minutes. It took forever, from what I recall. And then we have Ken's chapter, which is a little bit more interesting to me. Not to say that the Veronica chapter is boring. I'm just, you know, I've read it before. And then the book starts to really pick up after that. And shortly after... Birch's chapters, we have Lilith's chapter, and Lilith's chapter marks the um, dividing point between part one and part two of the novel, which is an 18-year difference. And the reason why it's 18 years is because that is when Alan Price turns 18, I believe in the year 2033. So we have that to look forward to. There's a lot to be said about Alan and his part in this novel that I'll have to get into later. But he was one of the first characters that I wrote for this thing all the way back in 2010. Which we are almost through with 2023. And to think about how this book came to be and the fact that I published it about 10 years after I started writing it and now it's been about three years since then like this this book was a part of my life for so long and now it's done that's wild to me by the way if you're not telling other people about this podcast you're doing me and yourself a disservice because every week I think about this podcast and how I would love more of you to listen. So it would help me tremendously beyond me asking, hey, if you'd like to support the podcast, go buy my books or listen to my music every week, which I haven't done in about a month. Uh, it would be just so helpful if you listen to this every week. And I know that there are the several of you who do every week because I see the stats. It'd be great if you shared this with your friends and said, hey, listen to this podcast. This guy, he knows a thing or two. But aside from that, I don't have anything creatively going on right now. I have not recorded an album in a hot minute. I've recorded, what, three this year already, which... You know, when a month goes by, it feels like forever for me, creatively speaking. I published my fifth novel this year, but that feels like forever ago. Was that back in March? Jesus. I remember I was writing it in January, and then it's out in March. And I think about Greenskin a lot, too, because for one thing, it's my latest novel, it is the one that I'm most proud of. It's also the only one that I've put out that has gotten... Mo it's Here's the thing. It hasn't sold as well as Demise. None of my books has, have sold as well as Demise. But it's the only book that ever got the kind of reaction that it received. I'll put it that way. Mostly positive, of course, but still, it felt kind of slanted, in a sense. And there's no way you could make me ashamed of writing that book, by the way. 
because I love it. I think about it every day. I think about the characters that I created and I'm very proud of it. And I, it didn't take me very long to write. That's the other thing. By the time I got to book five, I know what I'm doing. I could write another novel in the same amount of time, no problem. Now, some may argue that Demise and Price are of a higher quality because they took me longer, but I've not heard anyone make that argument, honestly. But if you haven't checked out my latest novel, Green Skin, please do so. I have four episodes on this podcast where I read almost to the first half of it, if you want to check that out. But you you would be supporting me and you would give me reason to put another novel out. Because right now, one of the reasons why I'm not writing another novel is because no one's asked me to write another novel. All of the ideas that I have for a new novel, quite frankly, could be just a collection of short stories that I read on the podcast and never put into print. And I don't know that anyone would really care. So that's one aspect of it. Uh, The novel is a very young format. Books are incredibly popular as evidenced by the fact that you can go into a Walmart or a Target and there is a bigger book selection than there is for DVDs or music. Um. I would argue that there's actually more selection of books than there are for video games in those establishments, but that might be because more people are downloading games these days. Aside from that, um, for me, I don't see a reason to put a, a new novel out anytime soon, and I have this podcast, which is still a very young medium, very young format, to put things out on, even though everyone and their uncle Sally has a podcast now. But I've had one for over 200 episodes that's been going on since 2020. So most people who start podcasts don't even make it to five episodes. A lot of people make one or two episodes and then they're done. And now every celebrity wants to start a podcast and uh, quite frankly a lot of them suck you know I've listened to a lot of them I listen to podcasts as I work throughout the week and the ones that are still good are the ones that are from people who started out in podcast more or less all that the actors and celebrities who come around and think that they have something interesting or unique to say well all they're doing is making me dislike them so I guess the same could be same for me. You know, I didn't necessarily start out as a podcaster. I came into this with the intent of promoting my writing um, and also having a format to take over from the blog that I'm no longer operating as a, a means of expression, I guess. We're over eight minutes in, so you're probably tired of hearing me talk. And I'm just going to start reading from Veronica's chapter, and hopefully there will be something in here that makes me want to talk other than uh, not wanting to listen to me read anymore. Uh, Lucifer holds my son, Alan, as Murray pulls out my few belongings and forces them into a duffel bag. The baby sleeps without disturbance in the arms of evil, and I hope to never see that little bastard again. Last night, someone murdered my grandfather, Walter, and Murray woke me up to leave because we're all apparently in danger. I haven't felt safe since I met Lucifer. I raised him, Lucifer says. This man who fears for your life. If I hadn't failed in rearing him, he wouldn't care if you lived or died. You wouldn't be here. Then you wouldn't be holding your son, I say. You're welcome for that. Grabbing my arm, Murray pulls me through the house Lucifer imprisoned me in while Alan grew inside me. He wouldn't let me leave until today. Otherwise, I 
had anything I wanted to eat, could sleep into the afternoon, had high-speed internet access, and there was a 75-inch TV in the living room, and Murray personalized a bookcase for me to explore when I grew too bored of television. If I had a life outside of Lucifer's seed, it wouldn't feel like I was leaving a cell. There's a black Suzuki Kazashi in the garage, which Murray throws the duffel bag inside and presses the keys into my palm. He's my father, and I think he cares for me, yet I don't see him as anything but a prison guard. With his lips curling under his teeth, he touches my cheek and those blue eyes begin to water as if he's a suburban dad seeing his daughter leave for college. I'm sorry, he says. You'll have a chance to do whatever you want now. Just get out of Georgia and you don't let anyone know your real name. You don't have to see me ever again. I know you don't love your son, but I'm going to take care of him. Thank you, I manage. Once I'm in the Suzuki, I watch Murray linger as he sees me reverse out of the garage. When I look at him, I see someone who murdered a lot of people for the sake of evil. Yet, he's able to feel sorrow and remorse, and that's what disappoints Lucifer. Murray is half-human, but there are full-blooded men who are more monstrous than him. The notion that I'm in danger doesn't matter because my life until this point is not a tale of pleasure or greatness. If someone came after me, I'd wonder why they'd waste my death. I'm not important enough to die yet. Heading north on I-85, I'm going to drive north until I either run out of gas or find a place I want to stop. I've never left the state before today. My mom kept me c- confined in our county, so any anywhere but here means something I haven't experienced. When I get there, I can dye my hair, buy a new wardrobe, and rent an apartment until I figure out my identity. I haven't had one before. When I was in high school, uh, it was during my second semester my freshman year we had a biology class and this kid who actually lived down the street from me his name was Joel Uh, we were supposed to tell three truths and a lie and his lie was that he'd never left our county before Uh, the other the other one that I can remember is that he said his favorite band was Tool which I would say is the lie When you drive long distances, people are all trying to get somewhere, and it's often more interesting to consider where the car next to you is headed. Where does that person live? If they're going home, what will they do once they're inside their house? Maybe they're leaving home, and if so, why? This is my David Byrne part of the book. If you are into the talking heads, listen to um, more songs about buildings and people, the second album. There's a song on, I think it's the last song, or it might be the song before Take Me to the River. I can't remember the title, but he talks about, it's almost like he's on a flight and he's looking down and he's looking at all the different houses and people in the world and wondering what it's like. And It's like an alien perspective on things. It was one of the things that, David Byrne was known for in his lyrics. Maybe they're leaving home, and if so, why? A woman with blue hair and tattoos driving a chipped green Toyota isn't anxious to meet her husband and children in a suburban home with a two-door garage, a green sod lawn, and a rose garden in the backyard. She's going to unlock her apartment door, ignore the smell of the litter box, put off doing her dishes another night, and pass out on her unmade bed with an outdated Dell laptop streaming American Horror Story. I bet that hits really close to home for some of you out there, but uh, let me tell you, this takes place in, I want to say 2015, and it might be actually 2014. I remember establishing a timeline in the last episode, and now I've forgotten. But I believe that 
Veronica dies in 2015, so it might be, it, it could still be 2014. This is great podcasting. But this wasn't entirely out of my own experience back then. I mean, I'd get home from school when I was in college and I would spend hours on Tumblr. I'd be watching American Horror Story on Hulu. Uh, I never had a Dell laptop, but most of the people that I knew who would have done something like this had Dell laptops that were old. They were like four or five years old. You know, the same laptop that they started college with. But all these details. Again, this is not a way that I really write anymore, and it's interesting to read it because it's kind of rich and interesting, but at the same time, I there's a part of me that kind of sighs because I know that there's someone out there who's like, why don't you just get to the point? Because uh, nowadays I'm, I'm more likely to get to the point a lot faster. What category do I want to enter? The lonely, eccentric, or family-oriented housewife? Surely there's more genres to explore in life than what I saw on television because all I want is barely getting by with all the spare money spent on drugs. It's interesting to see how much of the original characterization of Veronica from 2010 still exists in the book now because one of the reasons why I made Allison a druggie uh, Allison is Veronica's mom, for those of you who aren't following along, is because she was inspired by someone that I knew, someone that I dated. And, you know, I was bitter about that experience, and I crafted a character that was inspired by her uh, that will show up kind of in a different form later. I'll I'll talk about it then. But... It's crazy to me that Veronica had such a shitty life and she doesn't really get to live very long. And it's sad because she's really an interesting character. But at the same time, there's not a whole lot to her. You know, she hasn't had enough time to discover herself and to figure out what she wants out of life. But she's highly analytical, obviously. Maybe the city isn't for me, though I don't see myself inhabiting the wilderness in a one-room cabin. I can't figure what makes sense for myself because I only understand misery. By nightfall, I'm in Pennsylvania. I park at a McDonald's to figure out what I, c I can afford at this point. Surely Murray didn't send me off with a car, clothes, and no money. There's a briefcase next to my duffel bag, and of course, there's cash inside. Benjamin Franklin looks at me with a judgmental glare over and over. A note taped to the top reads, This debit card... This... Oh, God, Patrick. Read your own fucking writing correctly. The debit card enclosed is connected to and your new account. Jesus. Have a nice life, Murray. Maybe giving birth to Satan's spawn was worth the nine months of gaining weight and sitting on my ass. He even claimed I'll have a comfortable eternity in hell for my service. The reminder that I am blood related to a fallen angel who damns souls to an inflamed pit doesn't overwhelm me. Instead, I am comforted to know that I don't have to work for heaven. People pray every day, go to church each Sunday, give to charity, help those in need, and they're not guaranteed paradise after death. According to God's law, a murderer can enter his kingdom if the sinner repents, but that's not for mankind to judge. Murray told me about the Trinity, which bewilders me the most. God allows three people to not only escape death, but they can sin as they please and still go to heaven. Murray claims they possess free will like all humans, so they're supposed to find God and repent in their own way. I never met my cousin Ken, but Murray frightened me into never wanting to. I'm not sure if he's the one who wants to kill me or not. Surely there's a good man out there worthy of such power, and he'll ironically die before he achieves his potential. I don't want to fathom what Alan is capable of, but I know Lucifer didn't impregnate me because he wanted a kid. 
because I share his blood, I was the only woman capable of bearing his child. That sentence right there, surely there's a good man out there worthy of such power and he'll ironically die before he achieves his potential. The irony in this statement is that the first part of it is kind of foreshadowing Birch, although I would argue that Birch is not wholly good. But uh, ironically, he can never die, and that's his curse in life. That really fucks with my head. I only exist because of the devil. Does that mean my purpose is to serve him? With this money, maybe I'll find a different meaning in my existence. I spend the night in a hotel in Philadelphia. When I wake up, I lie in the wide sheets and stare at the ceramic ceiling with my mind blanking. There's nothing for me to do here, yet there's nothing I want to do. Looking out at the traffic below me, I see people with purpose. They're all headed somewhere, and I feel like I'm nowhere. A hair salon turns on a neon open sign that catches my eye. I was thinking about a new identity, the woman driving next to me with blue hair, and where I'd call home. Maybe. It all begins with a fresh look in the mirror, because my reflection on offers a reminder of my torment. The stylist pulls out a catalog of different haircuts and colors, and the models look like they're in the Matrix with spiked blood red hair and green mohawks. The women with practical hairstyles possess natural beauty, while the extreme ones definitely learned how to use makeup to mask their average faces. If I'm assessing myself as, as harshly, I'm definitely not a model. I had to think about that sentence for a second. Sometimes when I read, like the English major in me comes out a little too much, and I'm like, why is this sentence going in this direction? With tangled, dirty, blonde hair that reaches my ass, I resemble a captive white woman who escaped a native tribe's torture and a South American jungle, only to find myself alienated amongst common society. There we go with the analogies again, Patrick. The stylist might as well accept me as a rejected marble block to craft what she's able to with such poor material. With her little hands shampooing my head, the Asian woman speaks to her co-workers in another language. They could talk in English, and I wouldn't know what they were saying. What do normal people talk about? Towel drying my scalp, she brushes through the mess my mom bequeathed me before taking scissors to cousin It's granddaughter. When I open my eyes, I see the same girl looking back through the mirror, but her hair is neck level and doesn't resemble the blonded brown vines once there. Did you decide on a color? The stylist asked. What's something practical that won't make me stand out, I ask. Darker or lighter? Darker. After wrapping my hair in aluminum foil and sitting for an hour, I face another sink and hair dryer before seeing what qualifies as darker to this woman. My eyes begin to shake as her mouth opens slowly until I see why she's sh so shocked. My hair is... A light gray, as if I'm a Tumblr model with high-waist jeans and a decorative tank top. Wow. So, I guess now Tumblr references are dated, but for, you know, when this is supposed to be taking place, it makes sense, I suppose. You know, in ten years, no one's going to know what the fuck I'm talking about. I must have grabbed the wrong dye, she begins to apologize. No, I say. You're fine. The few clothes I have are pullovers, jeans, and old concert t-shirts my mom made me wear. When I was pregnant, my belly hung out under them, and I declined Murray's offers to buy maternity blouses. Why buy tents to wear when they won't fit you in a few weeks? I'm not about to buy a bunch of dresses and cute tops, though. I take an Uber to Target for some plain-colored tank tops, bras that actually fit me, leggings, and blue jean shorts. Shampoo and some Dove soap join the shopping cart. I don't know what else to buy. Maybe a place to live? Uh, as the author off the top of my head, I think she should have bought a toothbrush and toothpaste and maybe a hairbrush if she doesn't already have one, but I guess that's a 
beside the point. Finding a place in a day just isn't happening. I never lived on my own without help from an authority figure, so I don't know how to find an apartment. I can afford a hotel room for eternity, though I need more space and possessions to make myself a home. Inside a coffee shop, I order the most expensive drink, as if that will give me some inspiration. I have the motivation, but none of the knowledge. By the way, uh, my wife worked in leasing uh, for apartments. She started in student housing, and then uh, she worked in actual residential leasing for a while. And I can tell you that what she's about to do when she gets in a... Actually... She never gets an apartment. I see. Originally, this is this is the thing about being the author and remembering two different versions of something. Originally, she meets Birch because she gets an apartment that is either above or next to Birch's, and he invites her in because they see each other all the time. But I guess that's not what happens. So, um, pardon my interruption. I guess. So, I see these people. With their friends sitting around tiny tables, their frozen sugar and steaming black brews intermingling, and don't spot anyone I relate to. After they leave here, they'll go to work or home, and I'll be in a hotel room. A mess of brown locks walks in on a guy with a Japanese man screaming on his shirt. Pushing the hair from his face, he orders a medium chai latte and lies a backpack on a corner table with a window looking out the alley. Gee, I wonder who this could be, people. Pulling out headphones that encapsulate his ears, the loner scrolls through his iPhone and lingers before choosing a song. Even from across the room, I hear the bass pumping. So, uh, before we get to the proper introduction of this character, I will say that I would never write a sentence like the loner scrolls through his iPhone and lingers before choosing a song ever again. Not to say it's a bad sentence, but I just I don't see myself pointing out from the perspective of a character that someone else is a loner. I'd probably just you know show through other means that they are a loner. When the barista shouts Birch, he rises with the headphone cable dangling over his legs while his fingers try to pocket the phone and reel in the input. Awkwardly nodding at the bitch-faced blonde with her hair up, Birch returns to the table and looks over at me. I wouldn't call him handsome. With that lean baby face, he's cute. Despite his inhuman glare and Innocent curiosity, he returns my stare. But when I rise to approach him, he returns to the iPhone screen to pretend that he's calm, like Humphrey Bogart lighting a cigarette over a cheap scotch. Instead, he's more akin to a dog looking down after trying to prove his dominance. Hey, I sit across from him. The headphones collapse around his neck as a smile creeps around the corner of his lips. I, though I bet it's more bewilderment than interest, I'm aware that sitting with a stranger isn't socially kosher, yet I assumed my audacity would impress him. I'm Vicky, I say. I heard the barista say your name. It's interesting. With a paper cup in his hand, Birch smells the sweet tea and milk before taking a quick sip. Baby, I'm not pretty enough for him to acknowledge. I thought my gray hair might attract him more than my looks. He sees through cosmetic masks that cover the hollow personality of someone, I'm sure. What are you listening to? I ask. Peter Gabriel, he says. Melt. I don't know who that is, I admit. What kind of music does he play? So... Here's the thing. One of the reasons why I put in Peter Gabriel Mill, other than that album being awesome, um, again, a reference to real life, um, a girl that I dated. um, We came into my house, and I was talking to her about how awesome this album was, as you do when you're me. And uh, I started playing it, and uh, we somehow ended up naked together. 
And uh, she told me that she couldn't listen to that album without getting turned on. So um, for some reason, it just felt like something that would work in this instance where Birch is meeting Veronica for the first time. Anyway, Birch sets the latte down and unhooks his headphones from the phone before dropping them in the book bag. I interrupted his time. He didn't come in here for a weird girl to approach him when he paid for that latte, but I wasn't expecting him to walk in when I bought my coffee either. Surely, he sits back, you know who Phil Collins is. Yeah, I say, he's singing Tarzan. He was in a band called Genesis, Birch explains, and he originally played the drums until Peter Gabriel left in the mid-70s. His way of telling me what genre Peter Gabriel belongs in is to give me a history lesson. That's better than him walking out, and I did plead ignorance to myself only uh, a few moments ago. The world is blunt, yet this guy doesn't understand what that word means. You probably know a few of their songs, he says. Did you come over here just to ask me that? Who's on your shirt? I point. Tashiro Maifun. He looks down at the wide-mouthed man. It's a screenshot from Rashomon. Fun fact. If you go back to the the first chapter with Al and the scene with him and uh, Ken, originally he told Ken that his favorite movie wasn't The Searchers, that it was Rashomon. Again, I shrug. Nothing that I'm aware of. Would you like to watch it, he asked. Clearly you're interested in me. Crossing the street from a parking garage, I look up at the three brown brick towers supported over a gray stone entry level. Air conditioners poke out of windows and blinds open into gray rooms. Going to a stranger's apartment might perplex me if I wasn't part of Lucifer's lineage. If Murray can take bullets, I'm sure this awkward audio file can't hurt me. Birch opens his door to reveal an open room with bookshelves on each wall containing novels, Blu-ray, CDs, and vinyl LPs. A small kitchen sits on the right-hand corner as I walk in. A 65-inch flat screen sits in front of a leather sofa and coffee table. There's no other furniture, no dining table, chairs, or anything to occupy the empty space. So, Birch sets down the book bag on the floor. It's Vicky, right? Yeah, I nod. Do you want something to drink? He asks. It's a little early for popcorn. What do you have? I ask. Pointing toward the fridge, Birch motions for me to follow as he reveals Several 12-packs of Coke, Sprite, Pib, Diet Sea Grams, Ginger Ale, Pepsi, and Mountain Dew with condiments lining the shelves on the door and eggs and bacon serving as the only food. I look at him up close for the first time. His eyes are almost black with stubble on his pale cheeks, and I probably give him the dumbest grin. For the first time, I like someone, and he's... The closest thing to normal in my life. Leaning in, I pick up a pib and stand back expectantly because I have no idea if he's going to offer me a glass or reach in for a soda himself. I thought he was odd in the coffee shop, yet Birch is more natural in a domestic environment than I'll ever be. He grabs a ginger ale and opens the freezer to reach for some ice, which he drops into two tall glasses. Uh, nowadays, if I were going to write this, I would give Birch an ice maker. Have you ever heard the name Akira Kurosawa? He asked. I feel like this whole conversation that Birch and Veronica are having, where he's kind of uh, trying to seduce her with movies, is something that people would call a red flag on TikTok these days. Just assume I don't know anything about movies or music, I say. The only movie I've watched more than once is Alien. Well, he walks to the sofa. You won't be watching that when I'm around. It was my mom's favorite movie, I join him. 
was, he turns on the TV. Don't tell me your parents are dead too. Just my mom, I say. I don't really talk to my dad. The lies almost seem true. I spewed out the name Vicky without my any forethought. It's sexier than Veronica, and this guy might empathize with my half-truths more than the reality of me murdering Allison. He's never going to meet Murray either. <laughs> Little does she know, though he was nonchalant about his own parents' demise. You're not triggered by violence, he reaches for a Blu-ray. Vice versa, I cross my legs. Good. He puts the disc into a PlayStation. I'd make you watch it anyway. So here's the thing. Uh, him having a PlayStation as a Blu-ray player is a reference to his own chapter when he and Monsoon break into like a Target or a Walmart and stay, steal a bunch of PlayStations. A black and white film commences with sub- subtitles firing off under the Japanese title credits. Birch's eyes remain on the screen even as my gaze lingers on him. And the movie begins. I guess there's merit here, though the movie's so old I'm having a hard time disengaging from the dated soundtrack and strange editing. Birch's captivation tells me he's either more cultured than me, or he doesn't have any human interaction outside of movies. This apartment is dedicated to the arts, yet there are no pictures of family or signs of anyone ever cohabitating with him. Isn't it interesting because Veronica talked about, you know, how things go in the movies and shit and, you know, how she couldn't leave the house and her only real interaction with the world was through TV. And Murray talks about in his chapter how he didn't ever go out, that his only interaction with the world was through TV. Ken and uh, Al bond very briefly over movies and the fact that Charles Price has this large collection of laser disc. When DVDs came out, my uncles were in a competition with one another, um, particularly the oldest uncle and the youngest uncle. Um, my middle uncle, if you could call him that, didn't care as much. Uh, they were in a, a contest with one another to see how many classic movies they could get uh, they wanted to outdo one another. And, you know, my uncle would talk about how he bought all the Star Wars movies on DVD, which now doesn't seem like a big deal. And he was bragging about how he had all six and then all the James Bond movies, just stuff like that. And I remember my older uncle, when I went to his basement because he had a, a home theater. Um, he didn't really have a huge DVD collection by today's standards where some people have huge bookcases of them. Um, but you know, he had movies like Scarface and, um, Schindler's List, stuff like that. And when I was growing up, I had, by the time I was a teenager, we had a sizable VHS collection. And, of course, most of that got thrown away a few years ago, which is crazy. And the reality is that we have always kind of treasured buying things and owning things, I guess because you could watch or listen to something as many times as you want, anytime you want. But I don't know. It's interesting in contrast to today's world where everything is streamed. And right now I'm actually trying to get more physical copies of things. Uh, I asked my wife to buy me a bunch of the Marvel movies on Blu-ray that I didn't own yet for my birthday this year. Because even though they're all on Disney+, Plus, there's something about owning them that I can't quite explain. But also, there seems to be this ongoing paranoia that because content has been removed from platforms that one day... Uh, those physical things may be all we have. What happens when the movie ends? Will he drop me off at my hotel and we'll never see each other again? Do we date and get to know each other? Is he even romantically interested in me? And when the credits hit the screen, Birch 
puts up the movie and tiptoes his four fingers around the disc. He doesn't ask what I thought about whatever it is we just watched. Instead, he returns with another one. So I guess I'm hanging for a while. Are you hungry? He eventually asks. I didn't notice before he asked, but Pib blinds my stomach begging for food. I haven't had pizza or a cheeseburger since I lived with Allison. Murray didn't let me have any junk food for the sake of the baby. You don't have to make me anything, I say. I only buy fresh, he says, or get takeout. Are you craving anything? How do I accept without appearing too eager? I am hungry, but I don't want him to think that I'm a cow. These stretch marks on my stomach, breast, and legs came from Alan. Certainly not from overeating, which would have been so much better. What do you like on your pizza? Birch pulls out his iPhone. Cheese? I would hope so, he says. But what else? Pepperoni? Sure. You know, Birch dials the number. You weren't this way at the coffee shop. Do you not want to stick around? Oh, yeah, I slide closer. I really do. Ignoring my gesture, Birch launches into his pizza order. Maybe I need to make my intentions more obvious. First, I need to figure out my intentions. I like this guy, so how do I get him to reciprocate? Strip naked and hope he climbs on top? Maybe a less obvious and crazy move like putting my hand on his leg? Or is that too forward? I like you, I say without thinking. Birch turns his head, eyes shifting up in thought and smiles after a second. Did I just fuck up? I don't see why, he says. So I try sliding my hand on his shoulder and getting our faces a little closer. You're cute, I say, and you're like me. How are we alike, he asks. This is kind of an awkward interaction, but you have to think, Allison is not really all that socially adept. Leaning into his ear, I let my breath fall on his neck. He smells like dove soap and a bright cologne that tickles my nose. Because we're not like other people, I whisper. When Birch begins to chuckle, I pull away, but he takes my head and kisses my forehead as my as his face turns red. Brushing through my hair, he gives me the first sincere smile I've seen in a year. No one is like other people, he says. We're not special snowflakes, Vicky. We're all human. Well, I'm not. I never laugh like he does either. Despite his demure demeanor, Birch possesses human qualities I didn't know existed. Maybe I need to meet more people. After the pizza, movies, and small talk, Birch doesn't make any further romantic gestures. He appears more interested in the TV, so I need to leave until I figure out what happened today and when I followed a stranger to his apartment. This wasn't a waste of time, but there's no indication of a future here. Well, I say, thanks for the pizza and entertainment. Oh, Birch pauses the movie. You want me to drive you home? I'm staying in a hotel, I say. I can take an Uber. Wait, I assumed you were from here. Just passing through, I guess. It doesn't sound like you're too sure. I don't know where I want to settle or if I'll keep moving. But here's this guy who took some interest in me, despite my reservations. Birch must like me to some degree if I'm here. I do need a place to stay other than a hotel, and he's not an asshole so far. Are you, Birch says, running from something? No, I say. Just running. Then why do you want to leave, he asks. Are you bored? I figured it would save you the awkward part of asking me to leave. Maybe you should get to know me better. A frying sound accompanied with a pork smell greets my senses as I sit up on the sofa. 
Birch notices that I, I'm awake as he cooks breakfast and returns his attention to the frying pan without acknowledging me. Of course, I probably threw him off with my blank stare. In the bathroom, I see my gray hair for the first time since the salon, and I feel along the strands of hair that used to reach further down my back. This is Vicky, not Veronica Price. There are two plates of bacon and eggs with two glasses of water and coffee mugs steaming on the table. Birch may not know who I truly am, though neither do I. What I saw in the mirror was an abstraction. Someone I couldn't dream up or draw in a sketchbook while some stranger fucked my mom in the living room. You don't consider yourself a beautiful, unique being that sparks lust and men when your parent breaks a bong on your face only to punch you in the chest for the glass on the carpet. It was a very Patrick Bateman-esque passage. What I saw in the mirror was an abstraction. We eat without the TV on or conversation. Either Birch doesn't know how to make small talk like me, or he's in favor of silence. If I'm crafting my personality as I go, how did he arrive at his own? I'm not just here to watch a movie anymore, I say. Finishing his eggs, Birch sets down the plate while licking the salt from his lips and cleanses his palate with a jug of water. Looking at the blank screen before us, he doesn't acknowledge me. Instead, he appears lost in another movie with a samurai running around with a sword or gunman taking out a security team. Every day I'm off work, Birch says. I go to that coffee shop. A lot of people do, and I recognize them, but they never even look at me. They're too worried about how, the, how others perceive them. Even the barista doesn't notice I'm there. You were the first person in a year to make eye contact with me. And you were new. He likes to observe people too. I bet he wonders what their lives lead once they leave that coffee shop. Or maybe he already knows. Those headphones he had kept him safe from any potential anomalies that may wander from the hive mind. Yet, when I approached him, Birch put them away and listened to me. So, what does that make us, I ask? Friends, Birch says. Best friends. Then, tell me about who you are, I say. Why? He asked, you're not going to tell me who you really are, Vicky. Maybe that's what he finds unattractive in me. My lies. How honest can I be, though? I can't tell him about Lucifer, Murray, or Alan. That's a year out of my life that I can't forget nor leave out of my story. Yet he isn't going to believe what I make up. I can't tell you my real name, I say. I can't tell you much. It's not that I'm a liar. I just can't risk it. What can you tell me? I murdered my mom, I say. That's the lesser of the sins I've committed. Hmm, Birch says. I killed my mom too. It was my dad who saw the worst of me, though. Look at us with the blood on our hands. We can't wash it off, so at least we can watch it drip into the hardwood floor. Birch killed one more person than I have, and that doesn't make me fear him. Oddly, I empathize with him more so. By the way, by this point, Birch has killed more than just his parents. So, Birch says, Like you, I can't say a lot about myself. I don't maintain relationships because it's too dangerous. I never know when someone will find me on the job and shoot me in the back. What do you do that's so dangerous? I ask. 
I'm a thief, he leans back. People contract me to steal information. I'm a crackerjack hacker, but I'm more reliable as someone who can get in and out of places. That the, the more important files never see a computer screen. They're locked in saves, desk, and file cabinets. What makes you so good at it? I ask. I've never been to prison, Birch says. No one knows who I am when I'm stealing from them. Yet a lot of people know of me because they need me. I broke into a CEO's house once only to bring that same man information on his rivals who paid me to steal from his home office. Neither of them knew. Do you kill people too, I ask? Not since my dad, Birch says. But I haven't had a reason to since. That's a lie. As a <laughs> See, here's the thing. Uh, there's a short story that takes place before this chapter, uh, and it was published as Birch and Philly, and it is about Birch accidentally killing a police officer and then having to take on police officers in a parking garage and then him taking a job from Murray Groan. It's a whole thing. Uh, it would be interesting... I can't do it now, obviously, but it would be interesting to read all this stuff as it takes place in order. So I would have to take, I guess I'd have to read Charles Price and then I'd read the first part of this novel and then some of the short stories that take place in their various, you know, in the various parts of the timeline and whatnot. Uh, I don't know that, I think the only two short stories that take place during this novel that aren't in the novel is Ken Price's uh, prison short story and Birch and Philly. As if he didn't intrigue me enough, Birch pushes me in a grave of lust without having to dig a hole. The only way I know how to break this tension in my spine and heart is to bring him something to feel anxious about. I won't say we're the same. I stand up, but we're both orphans. Is that why you're attracted to me? Birch asked. We're outsiders. There's nothing special about being different, he says. Being an outsider doesn't mean anything because that's what an outsider is. It's a miserable existence, and I'm tired of people romanticizing it. As soon as... You think of yourself as special. You're in the same category as all the girls with blue hair and guys who were feminist until you get into the blue-haired girl's pants. I'm just saying that I like you. Why? He looks at me. Pushing him back, I straddle Birch and place my hand on his throat, my eyes meeting his growing in a fury. Stop questioning it. I press my nose against his. We move from the crowd. Oh, we move from the couch to the floor and wind up in the bed by the by dinner. Ah, oh, you can tell my brain is going because I'm making mistakes reading, and my voice seems to be going too. I'm making Murray sound well. Whoa! I'm making Veronica sound like she's a forty-year-old man. Even with my lungs grasping for life, my adrenaline remains peaked. Birch's chest should be red from my bite marks, though I almost intended to draw blood when scratching his back. As I look at the veins pumping in his neck, his eyes shut and surrender to rest. I think this is the first time I fucked an older guy who wasn't one of my mom's boyfriends. I lost my virginity at 13 and I can't remember what he looked like. It's four days before I think to check how much time passed between now and when I arrived in Philadelphia. My phone died because I never thought to charge it once I got here. I look over Birch's shoulder as he receives a call to see the date, and when he answers, I know he'll leave soon. Without an explanation, Birch goes to the closet and pulls out a trunk. 
unlocks the latch with the passcode, and I half expect to see an arsenal of guns. Instead, there's a laptop, bungee cables wrapped together, a single 9mm handgun, and cash underneath it all. Grabbing a pair of leather gloves and a black jacket from overhead, Birch takes the gear from the trunk and shoves it in the backpack he brought to the coffee shop. When will you be back? I ask as he heads toward the door. A couple hours, he says. Allison liked to leave for several days. I learned to cook the ramen and cream of mushroom soup because she forgot to leave money for food. The school would call asking where Veronica Price was and I'd pose as my mom and tell them to fuck off. Child Protective Services never showed up either. I remained alone with the pot-scented couch, 20-inch television, basic cable, and occasionally hot dogs in the fridge or Pop-Tarts left over from Allison's gorging. So I don't mind being alone with the fridge, cabinets full of canned goods, and more physical media than any Tumblr girl's fantasy. And though I peruse the movies, books, CDs, vinyl records, and have the money to go anywhere... I find myself clueless without Birch. You can tell a man wrote this book. When I finally pick out the Matrix and put the disc inside the PlayStation, settling down on the couch, the door opens and Birch enters with a shirt full of holes and sweat glowing on his face. The black leather jacket he left with drops on the floor and strips. What the hell? I run to him, taking off his shirt. Birch doesn't have a bruise, scratch, or red mark. The only indication of exhaustion comes from the droplets racing each other down his chest. These look like bullet holes in your clothes. I pick up the tattered shirt. With the book bag falling to where it was the day we met, Birch collapses on the sofa and presses play on the Blu-ray menu as if we planned a movie night. I'm still standing here with his clothes trying to put together the story. Murray told me he only knew of two men. Skin, bullets didn't pierce. The Trinity is supposed to be spread out around the world. But it's enough coincidence that Arthur Lindsay grew up in in Alabama while Ken Price was only a few hours away in Georgia. Plus, Ken is my second cousin, though my mom never spoke of him. Why did I decide to stop in Philadelphia? Listen, I am exhausted from reading that chapter, and I kind of knew it would happen. I I didn't want to make any promises about reading two chapters in this episode, uh, but I can't read another one. I really can't. My, my nothing in me wants to. I can't take it. Uh, I knew that chapter would drain me. It's a lot of work to put into mentally. I, Jesus Christ. See, the thing about reading my own work is that I notice all these things about it that other people don't notice about it, and I think back to when I wrote it and the process of writing it. It's not just me reading something. It's like I'm operating on several different levels, so it's kind of mentally exhausting at times. But, you know, I... I'm I'm drained in general lately, to be honest. Um, I wouldn't say I'm in a slump creatively. I just don't want to do anything. Does that count as a slump? Um, you know, I'd, I'd really just like to play Pokemon right now. Um, aside from that, I have a brief vacation to look forward to this week. Or I plan on sitting around in a hotel room watching movies and playing Pokemon, maybe writing. You know, I didn't want to start a writing project and spend all my time in this hotel room working, you know. I need time off from everything, really. And I've been spending a lot of time wondering what the fuck I'm going to do with my life and the future and everything because, uh, you know... I'm likely not going to get to teach for a living, not for the foreseeable future. And I have a lot to think about in regards to what I'm going to do with my life because boy, oh boy, um, 
I have a lot of life left. And it feels like, uh, as the, the, the song goes, I've missed the starting gun. Well, I'm done. Okay, I'm done. Next week, I'll read Ken's chapter. And uh, I'll probably have a little bit more pep in my step, depending on if I get good news this week or not. So this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading. Happy writing. Give your mama a big kiss for me, will you?